the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, I am Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Obviously, the major news internationally, uh, leading off, you know, the Today Show and Good Morning right. America and everything today is kind of this imminent escalating war uh, it, that the Russians are kind of waging in the Ukraine, right? right Overnight right. or in the last 24 hours, Vladimir Putin uh, has recognized the independence of two small separatist regions, which uh, kind of uh, the, the State Department of the U.S. basically said this is uh, a next step of escalation. This is kind yeah. of a next step moving forward. Uh, yeah. And so you and I, we've talked about we are not, um, you know, we this is not our wheelhouse. So let's listen to some audio just in case you haven't caught up on the latest news. Let's listen to this. Small crowds in eastern Ukraine's breakaway regions celebrated Russian President Vladimir Putin's decision to recognize their independence on Monday. To recognize these territories, which are on Ukraine's side of the border, as Russian territories, that gives him a pretext to send in troops because the pro-Russian authorities in these two areas uh, say that they feel like they're under threat from the Kiev government and can Russia please protect them. Western authorities say Russia has massed as many as 190,000 troops around Ukraine. Now Putin has ordered what he calls peacekeeping forces to enter the breakaway regions in response to what the Kremlin says is aggression by Ukrainian forces. Tanks were photographed in the city of Donetsk and witnesses said Russian military vehicles poured in early Tuesday. Local authorities didn't immediately confirm the arrival of Russian troops. This is a major escalation um, because he's sending Russian troops onto the territory of a sovereign country, that is Ukraine. It threatens to end the negotiations that have been going on uh, for weeks now in Europe, um, aimed at trying to get him to de-escalate the situation at the border. Russia said it's still open to diplomacy, but Putin's move further complicated those efforts to find a solution and triggered a wave of condemnation among world leaders. Uh, this is plainly in breach of international law. Russia should step back. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky discussed the crisis with President Biden and addressed the nation. After Putin's announcement, President Biden signed an executive order that will prohibit U.S. investments and trade in the breakaway regions. So this is not the big um, salvo of sanctions that the U.S. and Europe have been promising. Those could still come. Uh, it's limited probably because they want to hold that stuff in their quiver if President Putin decides to invade the rest of the country. All right, Aubrey. So uh, I don't know how you feel when you watch it. On some level, there's a detachment that says other side of the world, not right. my problem. Right. But there's also the, wow, this is putting a ton of people in harm's way. And who knows kind of the end game here? Yeah, I agree with you. It's so easy. And, you know, we've said this before in other situations around the world. It can be so easy 
to just kind of like hear that news and be like, oh, this is shocking, scary. And then you just move on with your life because you feel so removed from it. But I think the reality is for all of us, especially for Christians, when we're called to suffer with those who suffer, this can't remain um, distant from our prayers, our hopes, our thinking. Like we have to realize that one, this is devastating for the people of Ukraine, but also that this may have ripple effects that we don't even foresee right now. That's right. That's right. And so uh, that's kind of what's going on. But Aubrey, I do think uh, what we can kind of lean into here on this show, kind of what our focus is, the church of the Ukraine. What is going on there? What's going on with pastors? How can we be praying for the region? Uh, At Christianity Today, uh, Jason Casper is his name. He's actually been on our show before. Uh, Jason Casper uh, wrote this. Amid war and rumors of war, Ukraine pastors preach and prepare. Sunday sermons from Baptists and Pentecostals focus on peacemaking, but also aftermath of any Russian invasion. Mm. Uh, Let me just read the beginning of it. Facing imminent war, Ukrainian evangelicals preached peace the day before Vladimir Putin dramatically escalated tensions by recognizing the independence of two separatist regions on Monday evening. Uh, Foreign Affairs Director of the Ukrainian Pentecostal Church told his congregation this past weekend, go closer to meet those who are against you or fighting you. We are not only to enjoy peace ourselves, but we are to share it. He followed with an application talking about do not let your hearts be troubled. Aubrey, as I read this, uh, he went on to say, protect yourself and your family by all means possible and serve as a mentor for people in a bad state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Aubrey, as I read this, uh, I, the kind of rubber meeting the road here of one's theology and yeah. one's preaching, the kind of preaching exactly into a moment, something I've never really experienced as a preacher and as a pastor, but uh, what a uh, burden, but also mm-hmm. opportunity for the pastors who are in the Ukraine and what a difficult choice to go. Do we stay or do we go? Oh, absolutely. It, it, this is not comparable. So hear, hear this with a grain of salt. But That's I, right. uh, you know, I do feel like the closest we've gotten in the States is maybe like the very beginning of COVID preaching when we were mm-hmm. just like kind mm-hmm. of call. I'm sure, Brian, you did this as well as pastors all around the world, just calling people to like, let's not let fear win. Let's have hope like, and Mm -hmm. stay the course. And, and so to the, to the, you know, uh, progressive degree that this actually is where they're facing war and rumors of war to be calling people to yes, protect yourself and your family. I love that that pastor said that, but also you're there to serve. You're there as peacemakers. Mm -hmm. You're there as mentors. You're there to meet needs of the people around you uh, in the middle of what could be really, really bad. I think this is such an act of faith, such an act of leaning into Jesus and such an act of really being the light of the world that we're meant to be. And I think for us, what it is, is a call big time to pray for the That's strength right. of these Christians and pastors, because That's at the right. end of the day, yes, we faced COVID, but we have not faced war, at least in our generation on our land. And mm-hmm. so, and so to call these Christians in their land to remain faithful, when it could get really, really, really dark, um, we have to partner with them as our brothers and sisters in praying that the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit and God would give them strength. Yeah, it brings new meaning to love your neighbor. Uh, love, pray for your enemies, right? Yeah, love your enemies. Wow. Pray, pray for those who persecute you. Last week, the article says Elijah Brown of the Baptist World Alliance conducted a solidarity visit 
to the seventh most populous city in Europe, that being uh, Kiev. Kiev. Uh, and it says the tension is real, he said in a video. You can feel it in this frozen air. And then listen to what he said. Should there be chaos and confusion, the Baptist churches could be lighthouses in their community. There's some perspective there that I think is really difficult, but also really impressive in the darkest moments, in the darkest seasons, in the greatest struggle. This doesn't make it at all easier or anything, but there is opportunity like in the early church when they were being persecuted. There is an opportunity where it is darkest. That is where the light shines brightest. Yeah. Uh, and so, Aubrey, I, not only do we pray for peace and pray for protection, you pray that the opportunity in a weird way, I guess I'll put it this way and you can respond to this. You pray for revival in the midst of bombs going off yes, and, and advancement. You, you pray because this is something we've seen with the gospel uh, throughout history. You know, we had a we had a representative from World Relief at our church on Sunday, and he mm-hmm. was talking about how God does, even though it seems so terrible, he was actually talking about Afghanistan, how God does move people in his sovereignty so that they're in a place where they both hear and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. And mm-hmm. it seems so hard for us to understand that from our earthly perspective and our kind of small scale perspectives, but when we can see God's you know, bigger perspective, you don't know, like you're saying, Brian, this could be an opportunity for a revival. This could be an opportunity for the church to shine brighter than ever before. Not easy. We're not trying to say that and not trying to wrap up suffering in a pretty package, but just to trust like the sovereign hand of God and the all knowing, you know, movement of God is doing something here. And so we can pray that the church would be who the church is supposed to be and that God would meet them really tenderly in this hard season. Yeah. And so as followers of Jesus, we can take that perspective as we watch the news, as we kind of consume what's going on. Let's be men and women who are praying for the church in the Ukraine, um, praying that God would <clears throat> change the hearts of leaders, including Vladimir. Putin, right? Yeah. That God yep. would do a yep. work right. uh, and that ultimately uh, he, the gospel would move forward and he would be glorified in this. Well, coming up next, Dr. Karen Reeder, she's a professor of New Testament at Westmont College, has written a new book called The Samaritan Woman's Story. We're excited to talk to her about that book next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And Aubrey and I are excited to be joined by Professor of New Testament and co-coordinator of the Gender Studies Program at Westmont College, also the author of a book that just came out uh, just last week called The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Hashtag Church 2. Her name is Dr. Karen Reeder. Karen, how are you today? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for inviting me to be with you. Yeah, we're so glad that you're taking the time to join us. Before we jump into the book, uh, let's just have you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better. Sure. So I grew up actually in Illinois. My dad's a farmer in central Illinois. I grew up among the fields of corn and soybeans, um, but eventually landed here in California where I teach New Testament to some students who know the Bible really well and some students who've never opened a Bible before. So Mm. it's always an adventure. 
We're very jealous that you got to leave Illinois and yeah. you landed in California. <laughs> just, have to, just have to say that going into this interview. Karen, so excited about your new book, The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 after hashtag church too. And I would love just to hear what led to your interest in writing about the Samaritan woman, especially in light of the hashtag church to movement. Sure. So when the Me Too movement and then eventually the Church Too movement started back in um, 2017 or really took off in 2017, I just remember being so angry at the stories I was hearing, the experiences women and some men were sharing. And I wanted to contribute to helping the church recognize the issue and understand how to move forward and heal and do better at creating safe spaces for all people to worship. Um, But as a biblical scholar, I didn't really know what I could contribute until I started thinking about how the church has interpreted stories about women in the Bible and how often we sexualize women in the Bible in our interpretations, Mm -hmm. including the story of the Samaritan woman. And I started wondering, okay, as a biblical scholar, I see a lot more going on in a story like John 4. How could I help the church understand how our biblical interpretation has contributed to issues like church too, and how we can do better as biblical interpreters. And Karen, you talk about uh, a different interpretation of John 4, of the Samaritan woman. And and I look at the the more traditional look at it, and I've preached that sermon many times in my mm-hmm. church, right? And many right. of us have. Yes. And so kind of a two-part question uh, I don't know how else to ask this, except what kind of pressure do you feel when you're kind of uh, putting out there a different interpretation for something that's gone on? Like, is that, do you feel like you're kind of putting yourself out there uh, for scorn or whatever else? And then why don't you walk us through kind of your interpretation of the Samaritan woman story? Sure. So definitely in response to your first question, I think whenever someone comes up with this revolutionary new idea on how to interpret a biblical story, we should be really cautious and think, okay, (laughs) what's happening here? What's the actual evidence? And is this a justifiable interpretation? For my own interpretation of John 4, I think there's actually a long history of sort of this alternative look at the story that says the woman was not a sexual sinner. She was not an adulteress. She was not a prostitute as she's sometimes represented. Um, It goes back, in fact, to women's interpretation of the story as early as the Reformation. So there's a long history here of people challenging some of the standard ways the story has been interpreted, and I'm building on on that history. Um, So that gives me a little bit more comfort with presenting Mm -hmm. this different perspective. I'd say in general, what I'm doing with John 4 is um, setting aside some of the things that interpreters often assume are part of the story. So we often assume that Jesus is accusing the woman of sin. We assume that she was a sinner because of her marital history, um, that she was going to the well at noon because she's a social outcast and couldn't hang out with the other women. Um, None of that's actually in the story. When Jesus mentions her marital history, he doesn't say, you sinner, you must repent and change your ways. Um, In fact, the word sin and the word forgiveness, for that matter, they're never mentioned in the Samaritan woman's story. And I think we should take that seriously. So Mm. setting aside some of those assumptions we brought to the text, I then want to look at what's actually in the text 
And we find in this story, um, it's the longest conversation Jesus has with anyone in the Gospel of John. So that should strike our interest. Mm-hmm. Um, the woman really contributes to the conversation. So her questions and her comments move the conversation forward and give Jesus sort of the opportunity to make his grand revelation um, about who gets to be the people of God. And then at the end of the story, after this deep theological conversation, she's an evangelist. She goes and tells all of her neighbors about Jesus and they believe because of her word. So um, why why don't we center those aspects of her story mm-hmm. and see what that might give us? It's always struck me that, uh, wow, they're having a deep theological conversation mm-hmm. yes. and and she clearly knows some things and right. yet, n- and nobody talked, nobody preached. Yes. I don't think I've ever yes. even preached that, but as I've read it, I'm like, wait, there, this is significant. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, Karen, uh, I love that you're, you're kind of unpacking some of this stuff. Help us understand the connection between what perhaps is a, a wrong or even a sexist interpretation of that story with hashtag church too. Sure. So I want to say first that there's not a direct connection here. Obviously, no one is preaching um, John 4 and then saying, therefore, it is okay to sexually assault women. That is absolutely not the argument of the book. Um, I'm rather saying that when we look at the way a story like John 4 has been interpreted, And this is just one example of many, right? We could do the same thing with the stories of Mary Magdalene or the story of the woman um, who anoints Jesus' feet and wipes them with her hair, right? There over and over and over again, we find stories of women in the Bible um, are interpreted through a highly sexualized lens. Yeah. When we do that over and over, we're starting to make connections for people in our churches, right? saying that women in the Bible are important because of their sexuality and their sexuality is often sinful. Therefore, how are we um, drawing connections with the women who are sitting next to us in church? Mm. So I'm arguing in the book that our habits of interpreting biblical women bear relationship with the ways that women um, participate in church communities, Mm -hmm. the ways that women are treated within church communities. And some of our habits of biblical interpretation have opened the door to um, the victimization of women. Mm -hmm. Karen, uh, really important book. Thank you for spending some time with us. Who do you hope to read this book? Obviously, I think every Mm -hmm. author, you and Aubrey are both authors. I think you want to answer that. Everybody, right? Exactly, yes. (laughs) But but who specifically would you really want to pick this book up? So I wrote this book for the church. Um, usually my work has been very academic, but this one I really wanted to get into the hands of pastors, of Sunday school teachers, of Bible study leaders, and of just ordinary Christians who are trying to figure out both um, the place of women in scripture and how the Bible talks about women, but also the place of women in our churches today. Um, so I hope that this church will be, sorry, this book no. will be really helpful um, for the church in reframing some of the ways we've interpreted stories of biblical women and also the consequences of our interpretation for our churches today. Uh, We appreciate the time. Dr. Karen Reeder is professor of New Testament at Westmont College, also the author of the new book that we've been talking about, The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After 
Church to Karen. It's great to meet you. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Glad to be in conversation with you. You too. And you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, I am Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, on Sunday afternoon, after preaching, after doing church and this night, I tend to, even though football season's over, I'll get in our comfy chair and like have golf on in the background or basketball. I've told you before, I'm not much of a napper, but I'll start to doze a little bit. <laughs> That's always fun. So I was watching uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, all right, their basketball game. I was watching Michigan and Wisconsin. And uh, the game ended. Wisconsin won by a lot. They won by probably 15 points. They're doing the handshake line. And all of a sudden, I'm literally holding the remote, about to change it. They're about to go to a different program. And all of a sudden, you see a fight break out in the, oh. in the, in the handshake line. And the first punch, it was really kind of an open-handed slap, was thrown by the head coach of <gasps> Michigan, Jawan oh Howard. So, wow. Uh, there's a lot of kind of basketball nuance to this, but the, basically he thought the Wisconsin coach broke kind of an unwritten rule by calling a timeout with under a minute left up 15 or 20. Okay. Uh, Michigan was still pressing. So there was all this back and forth. You could feel the tension building. Oh my. Uh, and he, they do this handshake line. He was going to kind of walk past the, the, the Wisconsin coach kind of stopped him, like put his hands on him and said, let me explain. And it kind of exploded from there as he was like, don't wow. touch me. So what ended up happening, Aubrey, was Jawan Howard, after like a minute, he reached over. He didn't hit the other coach. He hit an assistant coach. Okay. And then, um, uh, all bedlam broke loose. He were- like punched him. Uh, open-handed slap. It was kind of okay. like a face push, if you could picture, gotcha, right? It was like gotcha. kind of yes. mix between a push and a slap. Okay. Uh, but now I'll you've say. got players throwing fists. You have the police kind of coming in. It it got scary a little bit. Mm. Uh, yesterday, and then uh, Jawan Howard, and then also the Wisconsin coach separately in their post-game press conferences, and they were still running kind of hot. They didn't really apologize, either of them, because <gasps> the Wisconsin coach was in the wrong. Jawan Howard of Michigan was really in the wrong. Like, yes, that's kind of right. how you can see it. Uh, neither. They both kind of made excuses as to what the other one did. So yesterday, Jawan Howard was suspended for the rest of the regular season, that being five games. The Wisconsin coach was uh, he was fined. And the players who threw punches were all suspended for a game apiece. Uh, and so, Aubrey, here's what a lot of the follow-up has been and what I – the angle I want to take on this because it was ridiculous. But when adults act like children, okay, <laughs> when the people who are leading – so I don't want to call these high, these college players children, right? They're yeah. college kids. But they saw their leaders acting in a childish way that mm-hmm. often that all of a sudden escalated into a physical altercation right mm-hmm. there on the court. Yeah. Uh, when our leaders act like children and it kind of gives license for everyone else to act that way. Yeah. When they set a bad example, when they behave badly. Yeah. Uh, Aubrey, I felt like, let me overstate this a little bit. I felt like what I was watching on my TV was a microcosm of everything that's wrong with our culture right now. That's what I was thinking. Like that just feels like, oh, welcome to America in 2022, like post pandemic 
or in the middle of the pandemic, post-pandemic insanity, like with the way we treat each other. Mm-hmm. This yeah. Is, this is wild. And so let's spin this towards the church. Okay. Because what we like to do is to point at people, but we really know Jesus tells us, look in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> look at this. There you go. So when adults act badly, when leaders, let's not just say adults, when leaders set a bad example and behave badly, uh, it can really ruin an institution. It can really, and we've seen that in yeah. the church over and over and over again. And Aubrey, I've tried to take it as I've listened. There's, this has been the number one sports story for the last 24, 48 hours, mm-hmm. right? People go and, uh, t- you know, it's been leading the sports centers yeah. and this and that. Uh, this is what's wrong right now. Oftentimes in the church, Aubrey, it's, yeah. it's leaders not acting like leaders. It's leaders acting, uh, entitled. It's, it's a lack of, um, decorum, civility, leadership in the midst of rising tensions. What should have happened is these two basketball player, uh, coaches should have decreased the tension. They should yes. have gone. They should have called each other after the game. They should have walked the other way, whatever else it might be. Uh, Aubrey, I feel like it is the leaders in the evangelical world right now who are doing a lot of the damage because that's just leading other people in the church, in the world to just kind of follow. Yeah, follow this example. You know, and and I know sports can get heated, Mm -hmm. you know, like that. That's some of the reality of sports. But at the same time, like here are here are two grown men that are or several men, I guess, that are leaders um, and. Uh, there's so many options. That's what I'm thinking. Even for the church, there's so many options. Like step mm-hmm. away from your screen, walk away from the situation, like cool down. Okay, we're all humans, even pastors, even ministry mm-hmm. leaders. We can get fired up, but like the wisdom to just maybe walk away, take a breath, calm down, and then come back to a situation that feels tense with a little bit more level headedness, a little bit more dignity, a little bit more wisdom. That's what sets the example, right, for the mm-hmm. next generation. And I, I think the reality is probably these men didn't necessarily want to be doing what they were doing, but the adrenaline gets pumping, right? And so anyway, the question about pastors and and ministry leaders and Christians, man, I... <sighs> It does feel like there's so much pent up rage that somehow, I don't know. I don't know if we all need like a big timeout. Like we all need a big <laughs> thinking. We all need a big just like time away from our screens and our conflict. We all need a Sabbath. I don't know what it's going to take, but we do need to remember, like you said, Brian, that we're setting examples for other people to follow. And if if we're all so upset about the world being a not peaceful place at the moment, it has to start with us. Yes, yes. I think that's well put. I guess I would put two things, two of my takeaways from okay, watching this go down. Uh, one is when you make a mistake, apologize. Yeah, yeah. And which to their credit, especially Juwan Howard did on Monday, 24 hours later, okay. and it seemed very sincere. But okay. own your mistakes. You don't need to be perfect. But a lot of times it is when right. we just excuse make for ourselves or other people that it only escalates. Uh, and two, if you've been given the responsibility of leadership, uh, understand that it's just that. It comes mm. with great uh, responsibility. My family and I, we watched over the weekend one of the older Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire, right? And what's the line in Spider-Man? With great power comes great responsibility. responsibility. If we could live by that mantra, 
I think we would uh, do a great service as the church, but unfortunately we don't. And so as happens in my life, I watched a basketball game turn into a brawl and it made me think of the church. And now (laughs) you suddenly have a sermon. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, one of our favorite pastors and author, Scott Sauls, he wrote something on Twitter, uh, pretty foundational to the faith that I want to ask your opinion on, Aubrey. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today on this Tuesday afternoon. All right, Aubrey, uh, sometimes we get content just from Twitter. I scroll through Twitter and things just catch no, my you eye. You find treasures on Twitter, Brian. You're very good at that. Isn't that right? Well, sometimes it's... Uh, uh, what would the opposite of treasure be without getting myself in trouble? <laughs> Dumpster uh, som- yes. garbage. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sometimes that's what you find on Twitter. And it, even True. that can also bring up good conversation points. But a lot of times I purposely follow pastors and authors that I really respect because they'll mm-hmm. just write stuff that makes you go, okay, I need to kind of sit in that mm-hmm. and think in that. And one of those people is Scott Sauls. Scott Sauls is the pastor of, what is it, Christ Presbyterian Church in yes. Nashville. Yes. Uh, also the author of many books. You can read them at scottsauls.com, but uh, also a prolific tweeter. <clears throat> and, and Scott tweeted this just the other day, Aubrey, and it sounds really simple, but it gets at what is actually at the foundation of our faith, what is actually at the foundation of our obedience, our worship, all of this. Uh, Scott Sauls wrote, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we are accountable to everything that he said. Hmm. Again, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we are accountable to everything that he said. Just uh, first blush, what's your take on what Scott had to say there? Yeah, I mean, it makes you just think like, okay, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that means... um he has authority over what we would consider one of the greatest, I don't know if people would use the language power, but powers that exist. Like the thing Mm -hmm. all of us are afraid of, let's be honest, like uh, is death. Anytime we give any type of authority to something that causes us fear, like cancer is an example, it's because it carries with it the ability to kill us, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would say death is that, the thing we're all afraid of, the thing we're all running from, and the biggest power that exists evil power that exists is death and so yes if jesus conquered death then that means like by very nature of who he is and that he could do that Mm -hmm. he has like all authority and we should be bowing down listening period i don't think we always think about that in in that uh that way but that's right i mean that's exactly right and that would be true of anybody like if it wasn't jesus like if somebody if you brian conquered death like i would be like oh that dude has some (laughs) <laughs> gravitas yeah, yeah exactly yeah and it reminds me of paul's words uh I, so i'm gonna use this off the top of my brain but right paul says uh if there is no resurrection from the dead then we are most to be pitied yeah like we are he says basically if jesus didn't rise from the dead then we are all wasting our time we are fools uh, we are to be most pitied because we've put our faith in something, someone who's a liar and mm. who isn't. It. it makes me think of the early church, right? Like 
So Jesus rises from the dead, the book of Acts tells us, and then ascends into heaven. And then you've got the early church, right? He appears to them, he ascends in heaven, and then they basically, through the power of the Holy Spirit, pick up the mantle and go with it. And the the early church goes. But what we often forget is every one of the disciples uh, died a brutal, brutal death uh, except for John, but if you read the history of John, he might as well have died a brutal death, yeah, right? No, it was for real. It was just as bad, uh, and and so it, one of the great apologetic questions is: if they didn't see Jesus rise from the dead, why in the world would they keep going to the point of dying? Yeah, right? It's yeah. the whole. Oh, yeah. it was a hoax. They made it up. Really. They made it up for what end? So they could hang on a cross? Exactly. So they could be beheaded? Right. 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 But but they knew that Jesus actually did rise from the yeah. dead, and therefore it changed everything. It fueled everything. So a lot of times, fast forward to us, we can go, you know what? I, I follow Jesus because he was a great teacher, because mm-hmm. intellectually he taught these unbelievable uh, it's true. Mm-hmm. I I I followed Jesus because he did miracles. Yeah. Also true. The the reality is everything about our faith hinges on whether or not that tomb was empty. And the first people who would have known believed it to such level that they went and died on behalf yep. because of it. Yep. Uh, and so speak to that, Aubrey, that, that all of from Paul's words to early church to everything, everything about our faith, in my opinion, hinges on whether that tomb was empty on that first Easter. Yeah. And, and I do think that can strengthen a lot of our faiths. Like this is why I think the word of God is so powerful because you know, God in his foresight knew, like, we would doubt our faith sometimes. We would doubt the reality of Jesus. We would doubt, is this thing I've put my whole life around real? But then when you, I I wholeheartedly agree, when you look at the stories of the disciples and then the later followers of Jesus who were willing to die for this uh, person, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. to me, that just solidifies like, oh, they they saw this, they knew this because the, what are you going to, you're not going to die for like just an interesting idea that you hope is true. No, you're going right. to give your life for something that you're like, no, 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 this is true. I have seen the power of God at work through Jesus Christ. I have, mm. I know that empty tomb was real. So I think it strengthens our faith to think about their faithfulness, frankly, after Jesus uh, ascended to heaven and then and then you're right like everything does hang on that empty tomb because if if Jesus didn't conquer death then there's not a lot of hope for the future right, right as we right. keep facing death as we keep facing suffering as the world you know around us is in suffering if we can't point to like okay but we know there's a victor we know there's a champion we know there's somebody who looked death in the face and roared like a lion at mm, death mm. if we can't do that then we're lost but we know we can and so right. it, so i this is i mean this is exactly right like if jesus rose from the dead uh then i mean let, let's bow down and mm. trust that everything else he says is true yeah, as we got, you know, we're two months from Easter. This is the essence. This is what we celebrate on Easter. And you just touched on something important, Aubrey. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is Lord. And if he is Lord, then we are accountable, as Saul says, to everything he said. We can't pick and choose. I don't like what Jesus said here, so I'm not going to follow that. But I do like what Jesus. No, that's making ourselves Lord, going, yeah. I'm going to pick and choose. 
it does remind me of C.S. Lewis's fav- famous, right? This whole concept gets that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. Right, uh, right. And, and that hinges on the empty tomb. Uh, but uh, let's end it this way, though, Aubrey. To declare then that Jesus is Lord, to declare he defeated death, the tomb is empty, he is Lord over all, does set the focus for how we're to live our lives. Because basically, our calling then is to follow him in everything that he said. Yeah. And and that also means a call to like a cruciform life. Mm-hmm. It, it also means a call to to dying to ourselves. It means a, a call to follow Jesus in picking up our cross. And that part is the tricky part, right? Like, I think it's really amazing to think about Jesus's authority and power and victory over death. But then when it comes to like, oh, now I I'm called to live a daily life of like serving and loving mm. my neighbor. And that's really when you're like, okay, do I believe Jesus is Lord or not? Okay. If I do, then I'm going to serve in the way that he served and trust that it's all working towards, you know, his glory and my good. It's a good word. Again, the, the tweet reads this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we are accountable to everything that he said. And that's the good news. If he rose from the dead, then Jesus is Lord and we can approach him that way. Good news uh, shared on the Twitter, the Twitter verse uh, by Scott Sauls. Grateful for him and grateful for that. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us today. Brian, it is Black History Month. You and I have uh, had some segments and some guests on to talk about Black History Month. And I was over at, you know, one of the places I like to go in the morning, Good Morning America. You love it. I love Good Morning America. I love their little, they do these great little video segments and stories that are so fun. But for Black History Month, they've been doing just some interesting special segments. And um, one of the women that they recently featured is a journalist named Tara Roberts. She's actually the first black woman to be on the cover of National Geographic magazine. But here's why. She is in the process of diving in the ocean which a group, with a group of divers in search of lost slave ships what she can, what they can learn mm. and um, for it, it just lost history, essentially. And uh, she's actually, okay, let me, let me fix this. She's not just the first black woman on the cover of National Geographic, the first black person on the cover of National Geographic. For, uh, pardon me, the first black explorer and storyteller on the cover of National Geographic. I want to get that right. Yep, yep. But she joined a scuba diving team called Diving with a Purpose. Their quest is to document and identify sunken slave shipwrecks around the world. And the interesting thing about this is apparently she was at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington. Washington, D.C., and she saw a photo of a group of black women in wetsuits, and that really caught her attention and kind of sparked mm. something in her imagination. And she was like, what is this? What are these these group of like female black divers doing? And found out about this organization. They're not scientists. They're not even historians. They're like regular people like you and me, yoga teachers, police officers, civil engineers, students who have committed themselves to this mission. And she... Uh, learned to dive and now does this full time, which is so incredible. Um, But apparently this group of black divers, again, diving with a purpose, they've been searching for artifacts to uncover the untold history of the 400 year old trans trans transatlantic slave trade. 
where more than 1.8 million people died and about a thousand shipwreck ships sunk to the bottom of the ocean. So those are the shipwrecks that they're searching for. And um, this is so fascinating to me. And what she says is this is not just Black people's history. This is global history. Mm. It's the transportation of 12.5 million Africans. It uh, changed coastlines. It changed landscapes. It created wealth. It diminished wealth. And she talks about um, she talks about how being a part of this work really honors the stories of the Africans who were on those slave ships. And I, mm. I want to actually play some audio from her talking about that, how this was a, um, this is difficult work, but also really honoring work. And she also talks about passing this mission on to the next generation. I think it's a good word for all of us. So let's go ahead and listen to that. And this next generation that's coming along, your nieces. So what was it about your story and what you do that inspired them to want to get in the water? I think it's sort of like me seeing the picture of the divers in the museum. We're not often seen represented in places. And if you're not seen, then people don't think that that's for them. And now you're representing because you are the first black woman explorer slash storyteller on the cover of Nat Geo magazine. That's so crazy. I grew up reading Nat Geo and I never saw like explorers that look like me. So it's mind blowing to see this picture. <laughs> There's something that is surprisingly healing about this work. There's agency. This idea that a group of people, ordinary people, have raised their hands and said, you know what, that history is important, and I'm going to do what I can to help raise it from the depths. There's something really empowering about that. Okay, Brian, so one of the things that I appreciate that um, she talks about, Tara Roberts talks about, is that this is hard and painful, yeah. obviously, like this is a, a shameful part of our history. And yet in searching for this history, searching for this shipwreck, there's a way to honor the enslaved people who were taken over and who lost mm -hmm. their lives. She talks mm -hmm. about how this is actually very empowering and is um, giving her and other people agency. And I think there is something so interesting about that, Brian, that when we are willing to maybe face uh, our sinful, shameful past, mm -hmm. but then also do something, even even for people who have gone to reclaim and redeem those stories, yeah. um, there's something so powerful and dignifying about it. Um, Kevin and I went to the Equal Justice Initiative Museum in Memphis last year, and one of the projects that they do is they help um, uh, modern people, like people like, you know, living in this day and age in America, find um, where their slave ancestors or enslaved ancestors were born and maybe even taken from. Wow. And they go to that location. They dig up dirt from that location. They put it in these jars and then display them almost as a way to just like reconnect to the land that they were stolen from. And that's wild. It's, you know, it, that kind of work is so emotional and so painful and so wild, like you said, but there is something so beautiful about. I mean, I don't know that we can like redeem necessarily the sin of right, slavery, right. but in able to to do something to like honor the past. Yeah. No, I think that's well put. I 
it, it reminds us that that the best way to move towards at least redemption of bad history, the best way to move, like you said, you can't fully redeem it, but the best way to move towards it is to acknowledge and kind of sit in just the horror of it, whether it be slavery or whatever else, you know, pick whatever else you're talking about. I right. think there, there's an important point there. Like you said, a lot of us just want to go, I don't want to talk about the past. Like, let's just, and this, this is true globally, like, or as a nation, but it's also true in our personal lives. Like, yeah. you know, the way that you start to heal and start to learn from is to acknowledge, you know, is to kind of unpack. And so that's one. I just, I was unaware of this story too, Aubrey, until you brought it to me. I just love the adventuresomeness of Isn't it. Isn't that cool? I know. I, I know. I love the dream of it. It's like so much, so often we put ourselves in boxes going, well, I'm this. This is what mm. I do. Oh, I'd kind of like to try that. I, I don't do that. I can't do that because mm. of X, Y, and Z. I can talk about reasons for not being able to do something all the time. But I, I get really inspired by these stories of somebody going, I saw this. It yeah. was, I, I kind of, no pun intended here, dove into it and look at the doors. It's open. I, and so there's so much good to this story. I'd, I'd really encourage people to go to Good Morning America and check it out. Yeah, you can also, um, National Geographic has a podcast series called Into the Depths where they're documenting her journey. So that might be a really, really interesting podcast to listen to. I'll just say one more thing, Brian. She's invited her two young nieces along with her. And so now mm. they're getting their um, diverse certificates and beginning to do this work with her. So I think that's a beautiful piece of it as well. The the adventure like you talked about, but then also passing this down to the next generation. Just a, just a very cool story mm. overall. Well, when we return, we're going to talk about doing small things for God. There's a lot of messaging out there about doing big things for mm. God. What if we take a different tactic and start thinking about doing small things for God? We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And it is the end of today's show. And so that fast. Means, it's fast. It went by so fast today. Hopefully, we entertained you or got you thinking on your way home from work today on this palindrome Tuesday. <laughs> uh, but it's the end of that show, which means that we like to give you something encouraging, challenging, or something to put a smile on your face Brian, at the NIVBible.com, there was a blog post just yesterday. And what it, it struck me because in quotes, it says, do big things for God. And I was like, oh, I think I know what this is going to be about. And then this author began talking about how, you know, we've all, those of us who have grown up in evangelical church world, we've all been to the conference or maybe we've said it ourselves in a church service or we've been in a youth ministry situation where we have heard like, God has big plans for you. Go change the world. Mm -hmm. Do a big thing for God. You're, and I think that was really big, probably for you and I growing up, Brian, is that like we knew God had called us to do something big, right? Then this became kind of a rallying cry for a generation. Like That's right. God wants to do big things through you. And so there's some sort of, I don't know, big ministry or big... Um, issue that you're supposed to tackle or, mm -hmm. or, or just something quote unquote big for God. Mm. And that's actually a 
beautiful thing to call people towards. But interestingly, this uh, person writing over at the NIVBible.com points out something that I think is really interesting and worth talking about. Says that um, this phrase, you can do big things for God, if not rightly interpreted through the lens of the gospel, can quickly morph into a rallying cry for mere human ambition and misguided aspirations disguised as a service to God. Then says it can cause us to overlook truly great opportunities for ministry and instead pursue influence, positions of power, and a larger platform. When this happens, humility is exchanged for self-promotion and the work suffers. What this author goes on to say is that for her, when she graduated from college, she found herself with an art degree. She had a desire to be a wife and a mom. But she also felt like she needed to be in a quote unquote big ministry because that's mm. what she had heard her whole yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. She says she worked in like beautiful shops and, you know, was doing meaningful work, but it wasn't like quote unquote big enough. She felt like she needed to be a part of something bigger and how this sort of misplaced identity and misguided expectations concluded that she was like never doing the thing that God called her to do. And it was a really sad battle for her. I think this is so interesting, Brian, because I think this is what a lot of people feel right now, Mm. that they uh, need to be doing something big, important, Mm -hmm. identifiable on social media, or it's not meaningful. But what we've seen is that does work for some people. God gives some people that opportunity. But for other people, they spend their lives chasing that. And it just like causes so many problems, a power struggle, an identity struggle, a disappointment in God himself. And um, I, so I I don't know, you and I have talked about how as we've gotten older, and this kind of just shows our own age, the most impressive life is just we've found are just faithful people kind of loving Jesus where they are. That's right. And it's That's not right. about their prestige or their like social media platform, but just about like, oh, wow, they love their family and God really well. And so I feel like this is a call for all of us to think about like how we can serve God in a small way instead of like doing big things. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is the uh the problem for me when I was especially younger going okay, I'm going to go into the ministry and and you know, I'm going to be the next Billy Graham or I'm going to be this or uh I'm planting a church and this church is going to reach all of these and there's nothing wrong with ambition. That's where this becomes difficult, right? right. How do you wrestle with ambition? But uh but the idea that all of us are going to be used, I told you this a couple weeks ago, I've tried to stop using the phrase that I used all the time in preaching uh, when I was kind of more in my younger years going this, you're called to change the world. This idea of changing the world. I think mm-hmm. we are called to make change in our world, whatever mm-hmm. that is, our friends and our neighbors and our family. And if God chooses to use you on a national or a global way, Praise God, lean into that. But this idea that we're going to put this upon everybody, that you are called to change the world, uh, becomes this burden. And here's one of the problems with Aubrey that I know I struggled with is – it makes you then when you don't change the world, uh, it makes you doubt God's calling in your life. But more yes. than that, it makes you doubt. What have I done wrong? Did God decide not to use me when in reality he's using you in your small group, in your neighborhood, in your family, in mm-hmm. your church, in your company, whatever else it might be. And I think, like you said, we're just called to be faithful in the places where God has put us. And again, if that put us is in a small group, great 
dive into it. If that's in a global uh, media enterprise, great, dive right. into that. But this idea of doing big things, God does big things, but sometimes those big things are in smaller mm-hmm. groups. Uh, yep. And and I always love the story of, I forget her name, I forget the story, but I always love the story of the Sunday school teacher uh, who faithfully taught every week for years and decades. And one of her students was Billy Graham. Oh, right? and, amazing. Well, amazing. Do you think that Sunday school teacher got to the end of her life and went, oh, God didn't use me for big things? Wow. Oh, you were you. So anyway, be careful of the ambition of big things. That's mm. ri- that's oftentimes just an internal pride thing that says, I want to be known. I want to have people celebrate me. Again, God does do that in some people, but that doesn't – is not the barometer for whether or not God is at work in and through you. Oh, such a good word, Brian. You are preaching today. Let me let me end by sharing uh, the final paragraph from this uh, article, again, over at the NIVbible.com. And this is by Leslie Calvan. She says this. She says, I believe the great work of each of our small lives is to live hand in hand with God for his big purpose and fame. Mm -hmm. My prayer for an encouragement to anyone reading this is that we would be like Mary, Brother Lawrence and Paul in seeking to put no confidence in the flesh, that we would lay down any temptation we have to build our own kingdom and instead seek to make faithful to progress toward fulfilling God's great work out of our love for him. And then she goes on to say, there's so much freedom in letting go of our human version of success which oftentimes turns into a misguided, quote unquote, Christian version of success, achievement and identity. When we let go of these things, we can trade them in for godly contentment and confidence in Christ's work, his loving presence, his ability to lead us where he knows we can most effectively serve him. And then the last sentence, she says, so yes, go do big things for God, truly big things, the things of everyday life. For him, with him, and by his grace. Mm. I think that's a good word for all of us on this Tuesday evening. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.